0: You. Good afternoon, everyone. I think we are going to get started. Thank you so much for coming to the second installment of the Islamic Studies workshop series uh, this quarter. Uh, we are co-sponsoring uh, the series this quarter with Center for East Asian Studies, particularly given the topic of our series, which is Islam and Muslims in East Asia and we are delighted to host Professor Maurice Gillette today uh, who joined us from all the way from Harvard College. (laughs) Uh, Professor uh, Gillette received her MA and PhD from Harvard University. Her research interests include capitalism, anthropology of the person, memory, history and narrative, visual culture, anthropology of Islam, urban Chinese Muslims, Hong Kong society and culture, and China. Uh, She's also the author of uh, Between Mecca and Beijing, Modernization and Consumption Among Urban Chinese Muslims, which came out from Stanford University Press in 2002. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Mm -hmm. Professor Shudat. Thank
1: you. Thank you you all for coming out this afternoon. It's great to see everyone. Uh, I would like to ask in a very non-judgmental way who was not able to read the paper, just give me a sense of... um, I didn't know the paper. Very good, okay, great, okay. That's very helpful, it gives me a little sense of what I should or shouldn't talk about today. So, um, in the paper, I'm just gonna kind of briefly describe the project for you. Uh, It's a chapter in a book that Huma Ghosh is editing Uh, It's called Walking the Tightrope in Asia and we think it's going to come out uh, with Syracuse University Press. And so she assembled a set of scholars, really in a range of disciplines, who worked on Muslims in East Asia and Muslims in Asia more broadly to think about uh, women and gender. Uh, And so this uh, chapter draft that you read is going to end up in that book. Um, And what I do in the project is I think comparatively about women's empowerment, Muslim women's empowerment. And I start out by tracing some of the themes in the literature on Muslim women's empowerment. And we can sort of say, basically, there's three um, analytic frames for thinking about women's empowerment. One is thinking about structure. Uh, The other is thinking about agency, as you can See already those are very related ways of thinking about the same thing, arguably, uh, and that's really the dominant approach to thinking about women's empowerment: either structure or agency. And then the third, uh, much less researched, is thinking about sentiment, uh, agency in relation to collective sentiment. Uh, so I talk a little bit about, uh, you know, these these ways of thinking about women's empowerment in this comparative literature, and then I look specifically at the case of the Xi'an um, Muslim district. And I end the paper with some reflections about. Uh, women's empowerment as a, as a conceptual framework. So what I want to uh, start out with here today is talking a little bit about Chinese Muslims in the Xi'an Muslim district. Uh, and I was, as I was uh, reading the paper this morning, I was sort of wishing that I worked on Muslims in Sweden, because obviously a lot of very interesting things are happening in Stockholm, but I don't. I work on <laughs> Muslims in China. And anyway, you wouldn't have invited me here if I worked in Sweden, so uh, that would have been a sad thing. Um, so the area where I work is uh, a very old city. It was the capital of China in ancient times. And uh, many Arabs and Persians traveled to this city of Xi'an along the Silk Road, um, starting in the really in the seventh century. Uh, and uh, all the way through the uh, period that uh, this area was the capital of Xi'an, of China. And uh, many of them, traders, but also political emissaries, stayed and settled in China and they took Chinese wives. Uh, there were also uh, Central Asian soldiers who came centuries later. They also lived in this and settled in this area. And these people, Muslims, really form the uh, ancestors of this group of folk who consider themselves Chinese Muslims or Hui. Uh, and they regard themselves as being descended from these uh, Arabs and Persian Muslims who came uh, a thousand years ago to this area. Uh, it's one of the oldest settlements, uh, one of the oldest Muslim settlements in China. Um, the Muslims here are Sunni Muslims. Uh, there's no Sufis here. Uh, there's no um, There's no Shia Muslims here. They're divided into three factions. There's uh, what locals call the Mood faction, which is actually, uh, comes from the Persian word Kadime, the old uh, faction. Uh, so that's the first form of Islamic practice that reached this area. And then there's uh, smaller groups of uh, reformist movements, the Sunayti and the Salafia are also here, and those are 20, 20th century reformist movements, kind of came, came, uh, came later. And so the, the bulk of the Muslims Probably now maybe about 70% of the Muslims in this neighborhood. It's about 30,000 or so Muslims living in this neighborhood, maybe more, maybe up to 80,000, I've seen different figures. Most of them are Sunni, most of them are but um, a smaller group than belonging to these reformist factions. Um, The other thing I should say about the Muslims who live here is that they are one of the 55 officially recognized minority groups in China. Uh, I think there's maybe 11 or 12 Muslim minority groups. Uh, This group is distinctive in that um, they are Chinese speakers. They speak the dialect of the Chinese that live in the areas where they are. They're settled all over China with concentration in the Northwest, but again, you find them in really every major city in China has Chinese Muslims there. Um, And they are very different from the Central Asian Muslims uh, that you were hearing about last week. and uh, they regard themselves as fairly different from, and as better Muslims than uh, uh, Muslims from the uh, Central Asian parts of China. I should say, uh, if you have any questions at any, any moment during my um, introduction to this area and to this paper, uh, just stop me. It would, would be fine. So um, as I'm sure many of you know, women's empowerment is a, is a dominant theme in the literature on Muslim women uh, And Islam is often thought of as promoting women's subordination. and uh, some of that comes from the Quran, especially sort of 434, which uh, some scholars read as mandating women to be submissive to men. But I follow uh, Reza Aslan in his really nice introduction uh, to Islamic studies no God but God points out that really there's many ways to read that passage, and it really depends on the viewpoint of the reader. Do you want to read that passage as mandating that Muslim women should be submissive to Muslim men, or do you want to read it as mandating women's empowerment? So uh, I don't think there's anything, uh, in my view, I wouldn't say there's anything uh, definitive in the Quran that uh, uh, precludes women from being empowered. And of course, if you look at it historically, there's all sorts of reasons why you might argue that Islam was, in fact, very uh, empowering for women. Um, other reason, of course, that uh, people tend to think of Islam as uh, not as good for women are a set of hadith, in particular hadith about stoning uh, women who commit adultery. In fact, these hadith um, condemn the stoning of all adulterers, and um, you know many Muslims will question the authority of the hadith. They certainly aren't treated as having the same authority as the Quran. These are sayings of the Prophet, um, and they're they're not the word of God. So it's a very different um, level of treatment for uh, these things. So in my view, Islam has kind of a bad rap when it comes to uh, women's empowerment. Anthropologists who have uh, studied women's empowerment have looked kind of focused on a set of issues. Um, Honor and shame is a big one in the anthropological literature, especially in the Middle East. Uh, Gender segregation, women's access to public space, uh, and dress and veiling. And uh, we recently had a, uh, an Iraqi <clears throat> scholar out at Haverford who's like, why are Americans obsessed with how Muslim women dress? And it's a great question. I mean, we are kind of obsessed as a, as a society. Uh, great question. So a lot of this literature, this anthropological literature on Muslim women focuses on structure and agency. And I'll just walk you through a couple of examples. Um, this is Uni Weekend's recent book, In Honor of Fatime. It's a comparative study of honor killings. Uh, she looks at patriarchal kinship structures and cultural ideologies, and the limits of women's, Muslim women's agency in Europe. And the book's title comes from a very famous honorary killing case, um, a Kurdish-Turkish Muslim uh, who was murdered by her father for choosing her own uh, boyfriend. And the the uh, issue that um, we can really focus on in, in the case of Fatima is how, it wasn't, in fact, just that she chose her own boyfriend. That was the problem, because her family, at least her father and his and, and, and the kind of patriarchal structure in which she lived, that would have been acceptable if she had been willing to accept that she was now ostracized from the community. But she wasn't willing to accept that, and it was really the combination of um, both choosing her own boyfriend but refusing to be ostracized from the family that resulted in this in this particular death. And it's a very interesting book and a good book, I think. Um, in a kind of anthropological tradition of cultural relativism, trying to point out that honor killing is not limited to Muslims, and so on. So it's a a very interesting book. But again, looking at agency, and in this case, the limits of Fadi and other women's agency in terms of mate choice and uh, relations with the community. Now turn to a quick example of a book that focuses more on agency rather than structure, as much as Wiccan does. Um, And that's Carolyn Rouse's excellent book on African-American converts to Islam in California, *Engaged Surrender. And one of the things she's very interested in this book is in um, African-American converts to Islam who choose, in Rouse's eyes, more restriction, who counter the mainstream trend in America to uh, work, to feel liberated, perhaps, to uh, dress uh, however they wish, uh, and who instead choose um, to dress modestly, to focus on family, to defer to husbands, and so on. And she's she's very interested in this idea that these women have made this kind of countercultural choice. Uh, and she goes through a set of cases where women feel empowered by uh, making these kinds of choices that she regards as more restrictive. <coughs> and one of the things I think that's very interesting about um, Rouse's work, and it leads to me to my third sort of theme in the literature on um, Muslim women's empowerment, is uh, her attentiveness to sentiment. You know, Rouse, unlike other scholars, really cares about whether or not the women she was working with feel empowered. Uh, uh, she doesn't dismiss how they feel about their choices. She thinks how they feel about their choices is actually important. And that really took me back to this very early classic. On uh, Muslim women, which is Guest of the Sheikh, a great book if you haven't read it, um, Looking, uh, based on Elizabeth Fernia's uh, work, really as the accompaniment to an anthropologist in this small rocky village. And uh, she describes, you know, and what, from an American point of view, and certainly from Fernia's point of view, was a fairly restrictive social structure, a set of uh, uh, norms that um, restricted women's role in the public sphere, women didn't choose whether or not they could be educated, didn't choose their careers, they had to conform to a certain dress code. Uh, but one of the things that Fernia is attentive to is the fact that for many women this was very satisfying. That, in other words, um, there's a really great kind of key incident in this book, or at least I regard it as a key incident, where she's talking to one of the um, Sheikh's wives, Selma, his f- favorite wife. And the sheik is getting ready to go on vacation. And Furnia is kind of outraged because he's not taking Selma. And Selma never gets to go with the sheik on vacation. And you know, to Elizabeth Fernia, this is really bad. And Selma is like, why would I want to do that? I'm happy here at home. You know, there's no reason why I would want to leave this place with my family, my children, my friends. I mean, you know, maybe from your point of view, I'm not allowed to go. But from my point of view, I would never want to. Mm-hmm. So an important, I think, um, an insightful observation of Furnia's all right. Um, turning very briefly to um, the literature on Chinese Muslim women, there's not a lot of it. Really, two or um, three anthropologists who've kind of focused on this issue. One is Barbara Pillsbury, who was really the first Western scholar to work on uh, Chinese Muslims, and she did her fieldwork in Taiwan. Uh, and she, um, she talks about women's mosques, uh, women's opportunities for education, uh, women's uh, role in the workforce. Uh, one of the things she's interested in is how, when Muslim families get more established in Taiwan, the wife often returns to the home. She doesn't choose to stay in the workforce when the family has reached a certain economic level. Uh, the other work that I would call to your attention is uh, Maria Yashak and Shui Jing Jun's monograph, The History of Women's Mosque in Chinese Islam. Very interesting study uh, based in central China um, in, I think, the Kaifeng area. And one of the things that's interesting about that area is that it had a very, very strong tradition of women's practice that was quite separate from Muslim men's practice. Uh, They had fully autonomous women's mosques. Uh, They had fully autonomous women ahong or imams. Uh, They had a separate system of women's religious education, uh, often in Persian, in fact. Uh, Persian is sort of the second language of Islam uh, for Chinese Muslims. Uh, So a very, very interesting community. Not very, I would say not typical of Muslims, say, in Northwest China, where I work, but still very interesting. And one of the things that she and Shui uh, talk about in this book is how this religious history, coupled with a set of Communist Party reforms to bring women into the labor force, to give women access to education, uh, have resulted in a a kind of a structure of opportunity for Muslim women, where women have lots of advantages and can play a more key role in their local communities uh, than Muslim women elsewhere. Oops, sorry. Okay, so now um, turning to Xi'an in this Muslim district um, where I worked. Uh, there's some similarities to what Pillsbury and Yashak and Shui have found. Um, certainly in this neighborhood, uh, and I've been working there since the early 90s, so I've worked for almost 20 years now, um, Women very much uh, understood their role in uh, religious observance as being keeping pure, uh, halal, uh, religious homes, raising their children in a pop- proper Muslim way. Food is a, very, is a central locus of uh, Islamic practice, particularly for women. Women are really responsible for making sure the house is uh, following proper eating and dietary practices. Um, different, I think, from Yashak's work. In that uh, you don't find uh, independent women's mosques here. You don't find independent women leaders. Um, the females who have a higher standing in the community in terms of religious life tend to be the wives of Ahong. So you, it's a very different setup in that sense. It doesn't have that independent tradition of, of women's religious practice that you found in Anet. So, um, what I do in the paper. Yes, yeah, so I start out, as I said, kind of following these three things of structure, agency, and sentiment. Um, and so I first start out talking about structure. And uh, the Shia Muslim District is, you know, by an American standard, is a very conservative place. Uh, it's patrilineal kinship, a rather patriarchal society in many respects. Um, weddings still tend to be arranged by parents. Uh, women don't inherit property. They're legally obligated, they're illegally entitled to inherit property, but women don't claim it. Um, kinship is patrilineal. The husband's family is privileged. After marriage, women will go live in the groom's father's house, so the groom's father will at least provide the housing. Um, divorce is very uncommon. In terms of work, uh, most people in this neighborhood, most women in this neighborhood, vast majority, work in these small uh, private family businesses, many of which are related to food, uh, but others are um, uh, related to other kinds of uh, commerce. Uh, pretty small scale family run businesses, women work in them, women never own them, women don't regard themselves as the representative of these institutions, they mostly provide labor. and. Um, When times are tight, as for example, during the recession that happened in this area in the late 90s, uh, women are the first ones to not get paid, Uh, women are the first ones to return to the home so that um, more money is available for the men to earn. Uh, In terms of leadership, it's almost exclusively male, the one exception in this neighborhood was a Muslim woman who was president of the middle school, and she really um, was a community leader because the local government made her a community leader, not because the community wanted her to be a community leader. And it was particularly noticeable because as soon as she uh, retired from being the president, that was the last time she was ever invited to a public function in this area. So leadership is really male, um, wealthy uh, businessmen in the area, and religious uh, clergy, that seems to be. Um, modesty, um, there's a, there's a, you know, you find differences in families. I mean, I would say the general trend is that women tend to dress modestly in this neighborhood. Uh, but I certainly do young Muslim women who, uh, wear, wore skirts, which is not regarded as modest in this area, or who, um, You know, didn't cover their hair or or, or so on, didn't wear long sleeves. So, that, you know, it's not to say that those things didn't happen, but I would say that the overall trend is for modest dress. Um, And, you know, women I spoke to about it as recently as three years ago would say, well, you know, this is what you have to wear when you're in this neighborhood. Um, One woman who was friends with some other people (coughs) who live elsewhere in the city, and she and I went out to visit them, and as soon as she left the Muslim district, she took off her veil. And, you know, she's like, look, that's what I have to wear when I'm in this neighborhood you know, other places I can wear something different. So there is a sense of um, a strong social pressure to dress modestly for women. But again, I'm not sure that lots of women experience that as being particularly restrictive. All right, so the next thing I do in the paper is I look at three case studies of agency. Uh, The first one is this woman, Lain, here on the left. Uh, She's an older woman in her early 60s in uh, 2010. And I talk a little bit about her life. And the the case that I'm really thinking about in the paper is her decision to leave her state sector job and to go work for her father in his noodle stall. And at the time she quit um, her state sector job, it was really many years before anybody had the foggiest idea that the centralized economy was going to collapse. And in fact, that's generally true in this neighborhood. People got off the boat of the planned economy in the 80s uh, and they went to these small family-run businesses. So my point is that she didn't quit the state sector job because you know, she knew that the future would, would bring the end of the state system. She quit because she thought it was what was best. Uh, and basically, she and her husband were trying to make sure they raised enough money for their two sons' marriages, because they were responsible for paying those marriages and buying the houses for their sons. Um, And she can make more money working for her dad. And so that was her choice. And my point was that it was a meaningful choice. I mean, she could have easily stayed in the state sector. It was a guaranteed iron rice bowl, lifetime employment, pension, and so on. And she chose to leave that job and go work for her dad. Uh, The next case of agency that I look uh, at is this young woman, Yen, here on the left. Um, Yen was probably the... And her family were certainly the first family that I got to know really well in this neighborhood. Um, She studied English with me. And what I um, talk about is her decision not to study abroad in the U.S. And from the moment that I met her, she was very, very eager to come to the United States, and she wanted to learn English, and she was going to come here, and she would study English, and maybe she would find a job, and she had all these great plans. Um, Nobody in her family supported her in these plans, and ultimately, she decided not to do it particularly in a particular year when her husband got ill and was at home for a while and she just realized she had two small children and you know, it's just not, not feasible. So she decided she wouldn't do it. And what I talk about in the paper is how um, it was her choice but it would have been very, very difficult for her to choose the other route. She had absolutely no support from anybody in her natal family or anybody in her husband's family. She didn't have any income, independent source of income. Um, she had responsibilities. Uh, it would have been an enormous hurdle for her to leave to actually choose to come to the US. And the third uh, case that I look at is this young woman, Xijun, and I look at uh, her decision to convert to Salafia, um, maybe converts, not the wrong, right word, to uh, take up the Salafia practice. And uh, she was really following her husband here uh, in that um, decision. Uh, and she was a very interesting person. Uh, and somewhat unusual in this neighborhood, in that she didn't come from a well-established family in the neighborhood. Uh, her mother was a migrant who had married a local man. The uh, father had died many, many years ago, so the mother had been very isolated in some respects, uh, with just a small nuclear family to rely on, her daughter and her son. Uh, and uh, Shijan then married into this family, which is a very big family in the, in the Muslim district with lots and lots of brothers and sisters and cousins and everything. Um, and uh, she unfortunately didn't get along with her mother-in-law. So she lived in her mother-in-law's house, and they didn't get along at all. And it just got worse and worse and worse over the years that I knew them. And she finally said to her husband, we have to get out of here. So they moved out, which was not very common. It still isn't so common in this area. Uh, and so when her husband decided he was going to become Salafia, um, she followed him in that Uh, and that's a fairly common decision in this area in the sense that um, women tend to when they get married tend to follow their husband's faction Um, but it's not necessarily the case that the women themselves will take it up they just maybe will encourage their children to follow their father in that um and one of the things that i talk about in this and i should i should say just mark for you that in this neighborhood changing from Gadimu to Salafia is a big deal. I mean, he was very, um, very very harsh on his family, very harsh on the education he received. He, in his own mind, he didn't regard his family as being Muslim you know, once, he, once he made the switch. Uh, it was a big rupture. Uh, and so when I talk about and think about her decision to follow him in that, um, again, I see this as a, a place where she didn't have a lot of choice. And I'm not saying she would have chosen otherwise. In fact, it was good for her. His decision to become Salafia uh, kind of strengthened their marriage in a sense, but she was very, very dependent on him. And so, you know, there really wasn't. She didn't have a local family. There, she didn't have a lot of resources. If she refused, she would have been even more isolated. And she was very dependent on his support to have a, a successful, and feasible, viable way of living in this neighborhood. So again, uh, it's agency, but um, I would say a rather different kind of agency than uh, Langyang had. And so. In this section, I kind of end up thinking about comparing these um, shifts in agency. And I do genuinely think that if we think about in terms of social structure, um, the period of the planned economy and the period when the government was promoting uh, women's involvement in the economy outside the home for pay, uh, did provide a set of alternatives to women that in this retreat, View to a more neoliberal uh, system; uh, those those alternatives don't don't exist, and so that in some ways has a limited women's opportunities for agency. Okay, so the third thing I look at in the paper is sentiment, and in some sense uh, that was kind of a late-breaking part of the paper. Uh, I wrote a draft, an early draft, uh, that I sent to this woman, Langen through her son, who I uh, am in contact with on email, And it was really just about structure and agency and I kind of said everything I said to you and I sent it to them. And, and she had him write back and say, you are missing the boat, basically. And She said, you know, we people who live here, we can see our lives are much better than our mother's lives were or our grandmother's lives were. She said, you know, my mother was cloistered from age of nine until she was an adult, and it wasn't until the communist came that she was able to have a job, that she was able to leave the house as an adult woman. Uh, look at my granddaughter, she takes piano lessons, you know, she's in a great school, her mother has an education, she has a great job, you know, women's lives are a lot better. And that was really an eye-opener for me, sort of thinking that um, you know, I need to take seriously how women feel about their lives, as well as my own sort of outsider perspective on structure and agency. So I added in this section on um, collective sentiment, and I talk about um, women's role as household managers, which is new. I talk about how women arrange marriages for their adult children. Um, You know, I talk about this shift from women being cloistered that was true up up through the 50s and now no longer exists and these kind of new opportunities for education and another thing that i I talk about in this section is how um i really never met a woman in this neighborhood who wished she could be me you know here i am and i've got this great job and (laughs) travel all over the world and that's so great but nobody i mean they felt sorry for me i don't have children I don't live in my parents' house. I don't have a lot of family living where I live. You know, they, they, you know in their view, I have a terrible life. And you know, that's uh, it's an important observation. So it really does uh, then make you think a little bit about this whole framework of women's empowerment. And I, I complu- conclude the paper by thinking about the ways that this whole analytic framework is very embedded in a particular set of historical, social, and cultural norms. There's there's an ideology of the person uh, that's a very European-American ideology of the person coming out of a particular history, which includes capitalism, uh, that's really behind this whole notion of women's empowerment. Um, And I think we should really question uh, uh, some of the baggage that this particular framework carries with it. Um, I don't think we can assume that the sort of Western model of the person as the autonomous agent who resists uh, and combats you know, repressive structures and who makes free choices. Uh, I don't think we can take that as necessarily the most felicitous notion of the person. I think we um, have a problem if we have a framework that makes it difficult to see agency when agency is choice to conform as opposed to choice to resist. Um, I talk a little bit about work by Lauren Leave and Laila Abu Ghoud. Lauren Leave has talked about um, how this particular notion of women's empowerment is very effective in promoting a neoliberal capitalist agenda um, and encourages a particular kind of understanding of the self, a particular mode of participation in the workforce, Has a lot of baggage. And Abu Ghoud, in writing about Muslim women, has talked about how it legitimates um, political imperialism, that this whole discourse of women's empowerment is very linked to a colonial, Civilizing Mission, uh, which of course was also a, a political imperialist mission uh, that legitimated certain kinds of interventions, most recently in Afghanistan, where we had to save these oppressed women. So again, as we as we think about um, women's empowerment as a framework, uh, we certainly need to be aware of these um, culturally embedded, socially embedded notions and the political and economic uh, uh, ramifications of this way of thinking. So that's pretty much it. Can hear your thoughts about it?